Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make sure you're aware of a few things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks at Hope Church LV, and also be sure to check out our website at hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're going as a church. Once again, thank you so much for checking out this sermon at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. May the 23rd of 1992 was one of the most significant days of my entire life. It was on that day that I had the joy of marrying the love of my life, Christy. I think we have a picture up here today. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we were only 12 years old, okay? Yes, I know. Uh, my wife sitting over here, she did not know that picture was going to be shown today. <laughs> to be honest with you, I didn't know which picture they were going to use either, so it's a little bit of a surprise to me. I guess I was trying to see the moon with those glasses. I don't know. <laughs> Early on in our relationship as husband and wife, there was a crucial question that we had to answer as a couple. It was a question that here we are today, it's hard to believe, but now over 27 years later, 27 years of marriage, it's a question that still today impacts our lives and it impacts the decisions that we make as husband and wife. As it turns out, that question that we had to answer 27 years ago was the most important question we would ever answer as husband and wife. It was not a question about who gets which side of the closet. It was not a question about where we would spend our vacations. It was not a question about how we would budget our money or save for retirement. It was not even a question about where we would live. The most important question we would ever answer is this question. What authority was going to shape our view of the marriage relationship? Whether you know it or not, it's the most important question you'll ever answer in your own marriage. What authority was going to shape our view of the marriage relationship? Because you see, there are always many possibilities that want to answer this question. There's friends and family. If we're not careful, the counsel of friends and family can be the ultimate authority that shapes the way your marriage is carried out. Friends and family can be valuable sources of counsel, but friends and family should not be the ultimate authority for what shapes the way you view the marriage relationship. Culture. Culture wants to, in many ways, shape the way we view the marriage relationship. We live in a day today where maybe like never before, culture is speaking into and desiring to shape the marriage relationship. Past experience, if not careful, can be the answer to this, to this question. Past experience can be the authority that somehow shapes the way we see the marriage relationship. And finally, Hollywood, movies, TV, music, if we're not careful, even though we maybe would never do it consciously, but sometimes subconsciously, we kind of shape some ideals based on what we see play out on a screen. And that becomes the authority that shapes our view of the marriage relationship. I don't want you to answer out loud, but what authority 
shapes how you view marriage. The way we answer that question impacts everything else. And for the Christian, there's only one right answer. Let me say that again. For the Christian, there's only one right answer. And my wife and I, 27 years ago, by God's grace, answered this question correctly. And as honest and transparent as I can be standing in front of you, had my wife and I not landed where we landed with the answer to this question, we would not be standing here before you today, 27 years later, as husband and wife. If we'd have let any of those other things shape our view of the marriage relationship, our marriage would not have lasted 27 years. And my wife's over here, please don't say amen very loudly. But here's the only right answer. The Word of God. The Word of God. For the Christian, there's only one ultimate authority that shapes how we view marriage, and it is the Word of God. Let me give you a little bit of a disclaimer today before we dive into a text of Scripture. Some of the things that you're going to hear me say today are going to seem and sound radical in light of contemporary society and culture. But hear my heart. God is God, and I am not. Here's what that means. I don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to treat the Bible like a cafeteria line. You know, when you go into a cafeteria line where you kind of get to pick what you like and what you don't like, I always, I always skip over the broccoli. I always do. Listen, there's not enough cheese on planet Earth to make broccoli good to me. There's just not. It, it, I don't like it. I've had it prepared a million different ways. My wife loves it every way you can make it. I don't like broccoli. If I'm in the cafeteria line all day long, I'm skipping over broccoli. There's a thousand other things I'll put on my plate before I choose broccoli. But the bottom line is broccoli is good for you, right? It has value. The Bible is not a cafeteria line where we get to pick and choose what we like and what we don't like. Because listen to me, the day we start approaching the Bible like a cafeteria line, it is no longer the Bible that we have our confidence in. We've now put our confidence in us. The Bible is the truth of God's Word, and we take it as God's Word, and we build our lives around God's Word, or it's not, and if it's not, what does it matter anyway? So today, we're going to approach God's Word as what we believe it to be, the absolute inspired truth of God's Word. And understanding that, we're going to use it as the sole authority from which we should see the marriage relationship. If you have your Bible, open it to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is one of the defining passages that has shaped my own marriage for 27 years. It still speaks into the daily target that my wife and I work towards as we build our marriage together for the future. Yeah, 27 years in, we're still working on it. You know why? Marriage is hard work. That's a good place for all the married people to say amen. That's a safe one. There's a lot of places today it's not going to be safe for you to say amen. You can say amen in your heart, but if you value your ribs, don't say it out loud because you're going to get one of these if you do. Ephesians 5, I want to read the whole section of Scripture and we're going to actually be unpacking this over this weekend and next weekend. Starting in verse number 21, 
says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Those verses of Scripture, we're going to go further in the next couple of weeks, looking more at parents and children, but that particular pericope of Scripture speaks straight to the heart of marriage, the marriage relationship, and God gives us some clear instruction here, and I want to try to unpack it in the time we have this morning. Let me start by giving you two foundational statements about family. Number one, family is the foundation of society. If you ever wondered why the enemy's attack is so zeroed in on the family, this ought to forever answer that question. The family is the foundation of society. We're a world made up of nations. The United Nations recognizes 195 sovereign nations. We're a world that's made up of nations, and every one of those nations is made up of either states or provinces or territories. And every one of those states and provinces and territories is made up of a collection of cities. And every one of those unique cities is made up of a collection of communities and neighborhoods. And every one of those communities and neighborhoods are founded upon families, every one of them. Before there was government, there was family. Before there were judicial systems, there was family. Before there were educational systems, there was family. Before there was even the church, there was the family. Everything we know in society is built upon the family. Family is the foundation of society. Here's the second thing. Marriage is the foundation of the family. Because the family is the foundation of society and marriage is the foundation of the family, marriage is the building block of human civilization. Let me say that one more time. Because family is the foundation of society and because marriage is the foundation of family, marriage becomes the building block of human civilization. Here's what that means. Family really does matter. Marriage matters. James Boyce, great theologian and scholar, listen to what he said about marriage. Marriage is the institution from which all other institutions come. The earliest education was done in the home. As mothers and fathers instructed their children to eat, walk, speak, work, and do many other things, from this basic and natural responsibility have come all formal centers of learning, schools, academies, colleges, universities, and other educational organizations. The earliest health care was developed in the home. Then came hospitals, clinics, and hospices. Marriage is the first and foundational institution, which means that all other institutions are in one way or another built upon it. God in his infinite wisdom established the covenant relationship of marriage to be the anchor in the family that is the building block of society. Family matters and marriage matters. So goes marriage, so goes the family. So goes the family, so goes the world. 
in which we live. I'm telling us that as we begin because I want us to realize we are talking about weighty issues. These are not just social, cultural, political issues. We are talking about that which God in his infinite wisdom established as the building block for human civilization. It's a big deal. So with that, let me give us four defining statements about marriage out of this passage of Scripture, and then we'll continue to unpack this further next weekend. Here's number one. Marriage is a relationship designed by God. Say that out loud with me. Marriage is a relationship designed by God. Here's what that means. It wasn't our idea. God created this marvelous human institution. We see it in verse 31 of our text. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Where'd Paul get that from? Paul there is quoting literally from Genesis chapter 2. He's quoting what God himself said about this institution when he founded it in Genesis chapter 2. Why did he found this institution? Well, the text, verse 31, begins with this phrase, for this reason. Well, you have to go back and see what God had just said to understand the reason. Look at Genesis 2.18. This is four verses before what God just said about leaving your father and mother and cleaving to your wife, becoming one flesh. God said this. Then God said, it is not what? It's not good. Look, Adam didn't come to this conclusion. God came to this conclusion. It is not good for a man to be alone i will make a say that loud helper and again that's one of the first places where society kind of begins to push back against god's design for marriage but it's simply because they don't understand what this word means the word helper comes from a hebrew root ezer konegdo say that out loud ezer konegdo you learned some hebrew today you can go home and make somebody think you're smart ezer konegdo say it one more time ezer konegdo doesn't sound like a beautiful word but it's a beautiful word this word ezer the root is used 20 other times in the old testament other than right here in Genesis chapter 1, every time this word is used, it refers to God himself. This is the only place in all the Old Testament the word ezer konegdo is used to even refer to a human being. Everywhere else it refers to God himself. Don't tell me this is some kind of second-class citizen word. This is a word about God himself and the role that God plays in rescuing and redeeming and bringing life. God said it's not good, it's not best for Adam to be by himself, to be alone. I'm going to make one who will bring life into him. Adam and Eve as husband and wife demonstrating the sanctity of what God created. Again, Montgomery Boyce, James Boyce said it this way, the place to begin any discussion of marriage is with the fact that marriage is God's idea and that it is a good idea. It is a good idea because it comes from God who never had a bad idea. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean we hadn't tried our best to jack it up. But it's a good idea. And because God designed it, listen, God knows best how it works. His design is perfect. Number two, marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman. The Bible says of itself that all Scripture is inspired by God. 
Now, here's what that means. When the Bible says of itself that all Scripture is inspired by God, theologians call it verbal plenary inspiration. Here's what that means. Every word of Scripture is inspired by God. Here's what that means. There's not a word in the Scripture that is there by accident. It is there on purpose and with intent. Why is that significant? Every word Paul uses in this text to refer to husbands and wives is gender specific. These are not gender neutral terms. This is not spouse to your spouse, partner to your partner. These words are gender specific words. If God's word is the foundation and authority for marriage, then marriage must be between a man and a woman. The word wife here is the Greek word gune. It's normally translated as women or adult female. The word husband here is the word aner. It's a word that means an adult male, often translated men. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Look at Matthew chapter 15, verse 38. Matthew chapter 15, and those who ate, this is the text where Jesus had just fed 4,000 people. And those who ate, 4,000 were what? You know what that word is? Aner. Exact same word translated husband in Ephesians chapter 5. Besides the, what word is that? Gune, same word translated wives in Ephesians chapter 5 and children. Here, the scripture is clearly making a distinction between men and women and children. Otherwise, this sentence makes no sense at all. The same words used here are now translated husbands and wives. They're gender specific. You say, why are you making this point? Because this is the topic of major conversation in our society today. You say, why is this so important? Let me tell you why it's so important. This is not just a social political issue. It's a theological issue, meaning this. This is not just an issue of sexual preference. It's an issue that deals with the very character and purpose of God and the building block of human civilization as we know it. When it comes to sexual preference and desire, let me talk about that for just a minute. All of us as human beings are broken. The fall, we've all sinned against God. Part of our brokenness is that every one of us, if we're going to take our church mask off for a minute, every one of us as human beings have sexual preferences and desires that lay outside the boundaries of God given in his word. I'm not singling anybody out. I'm saying all of us. I'm saying standing up here today as your pastor, every one of us as human beings in our brokenness have sexual preferences and sexual desires that lay outside of the boundaries of God's design of sex between husband and wife in the context of marriage. Because we have those desires is not justification to act on those desires. We must choose in faith to submit ourselves to the only authority we've been given, which is the absolute truth of God's word. Why? Because God created marriage. He knows best how it works. God gave us the marriage relationship to teach us about who he is and the relationship he desires with us. That's why in Genesis, he said, I've created them male and female in my image. And in Ephesians 5, he chooses the marriage relationship to be the premier example of our relationship to him. Here's what this means. When we dishonor marriage, we are marring the very character of God in society. Our understanding of God is wrapped up in our understanding of marriage. As our understanding of marriage erodes, it erodes our understanding of God. So to attack this issue is to attack the very building block that God established when he birthed human civilization. And we must submit ourselves to the authority of his word. Now, we do that in grace. We deal with all of us in grace, understanding our brokenness. But our brokenness does not give us justification for deviating from the word that God has given us as the authority for marriage. Number three, everybody take a breath. We all right so far? Number three, marriage is a relationship in which husbands and wives demonstrate Christ-like submission towards one another. It's an important statement. 
Read it out loud with me. Marriage is a relationship in which husbands and wives demonstrate Christ-like submission towards one another. Now, if you've not been here the past two weekends, where you been? <laughs> if you haven't been here the past two weekends, let me encourage you to go online and watch everything I've said leading up to this. If you just jump in here, you're missing a big part of what I've already been teaching. But verse 21, I want to put back up on the screen. Ephesians 5, 21 says, read it out loud with me, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Paul begins this whole section of Scripture about relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children and other relationships we're going to talk about. Paul begins it with this overarching statement describing how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And everything he's about to say about husbands and wives is birthed out of this statement. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I gave you a defining statement on what we believe this means. Let me put it back up on the screen. In every way I relate to you, I consider you more important than me. For two weekends, we've been unpacking this biblical reality that as Christians, as we relate to one another, in every way we relate to one another, we're to consider others more important than ourselves. Now, what we're about to read is how Paul, now in the husband-wife relationship, begins to make application of this general principle. He's now teaching us what it looks like as wives live out this Christ-like submission towards their husbands and what it looks like for husbands as they live out their Christ-like submission towards their wives. We all in Christ-like submission are to relate to one another as more important than ourselves. But in doing so, Paul makes two defining statements, one about wives, one about husbands. Now, I'm only going to skim the surface of this this week, all right? So you got to come back next weekend to hear the rest of this as we unpack it in greater detail. Next weekend, we're going to take the two statements I'm about to give you, and we're going to unpack them in greater depth. But here's the first one, and it's to wives. You say, why wives first? Because that's the way Paul did it. It's the only reason, all right? I'm not picking. I'm just following the text. Wives, here's the, here's the statement. You are to demonstrate Christ-like submission by following the spiritual leadership of your husband. Now, remember again what we talked about over the last two weekends. The assumptions as we read this is Paul is writing to followers of Jesus where you got a husband and a wife who both know the Lord. They both know Jesus. They're both seeking to walk full of the Holy Spirit of God. So those are the assumptions that Paul, this is not a how-to for happy marriage in 2020, all right? That's not what we're talking about. What Paul is giving are practical applications for genuine believers full of the Holy Spirit seeking to live in submission to the Word of God. And if that's the situation that we're in, wives, you are to demonstrate Christ-like submission by following the spiritual leadership of your husband. Let me deal with two key words in these, these verses. First of all, he says, wives, be subject to your husbands. Be subject. It's really the verb implied from verse 21 to submit to one another. And we talked about this, to be subject is to voluntarily place oneself under. It's relating to them as though they are more important than myself. And the reason he says to do this, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. What does it mean when it says the husband is the head of the wife? Well, for sake of time, let me just give you, I read a lot about this this week. Let me give you a statement that I think summarized it best, and it's by John Piper. Listen what he said about headship or leadership. He said, it is a sense of benevolent responsibility that moves a man to take initiatives in the family so that God's will is done as much as humanly possible. That's what it means to be, that, that when the scripture says the husband has been placed in the home as the head, it means that he has been given a benevolent, a compassionate responsibility. And that responsibility is to take every initiative in the family to see that the family is pursuing the will of God as much as humanly 
possible. Here's what that means. If you're a wife today, know that God has given your husband the responsibility for spiritually leading you and your family. In Christ-like submission, you should follow him as he leads. Now, before you jump to the wrong conclusion and hit send on that email, let me tell you three things submission does not mean. Number one, submission does not mean inferiority. It's not what it means. Let me prove it to you. In the context of the Trinity, there is submission. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And yet in the context of Scripture, God the Son, Jesus, is submissive to the will of the Father, and God the Holy Spirit is submissive to the person of Jesus. And yet we understand there's one God manifesting in three distinct personalities, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If there can be equality and submission in the Trinity, there can be equality and submission in the home. It does not mean inferiority. Number two. Submission does not mean obey. That's a good place for all the women to say amen. (laughs) It's not what it means. As a matter of fact, the word obey is used in the parent-child relationship. It's a different word. Again, every word of Scripture is inspired. The spiritual responsibility that's been given to the husband is to lead in spiritual things. And this is not an obedience issue. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he has the final say in everything. It doesn't mean that he's a dictator. It doesn't mean his way or the highway. Any husband using this type of verse of Scripture to say, my way is always the best way or what I want always needs to be done is not a husband living out the principles of Ephesians chapter 5. That's not what it's teaching. It's not what it's teaching. So it doesn't mean inferiority. It doesn't mean obey. Listen to what Patrick Mabalog says. I love this. Husbands do not rule over their wives. In case we have forgotten, there's only one person who can rule over families, and that's God himself. Leading and ruling are not one thing. The leadership God calls husbands into in this context of service and love, pointing our family always to the one true ruler of the home. Here's the third thing it doesn't mean. Submission is not absolute. It's not absolute. This is not a verse that says all women are in submission to all men. That's not what it's saying at all. It doesn't say that all women are to follow the leadership of all men. That's not what it says. This is a unique relationship in between a husband and a wife where God has given the husband the responsibility and the accountability and will be held accountable for the spiritual direction of the family. In the context of that relationship, the wife is to submissively follow the leadership of that husband. This is not all women to all men. It's a unique relationship. And here's the other thing. Even in the side of the uniqueness of the relationship between the husband and the wife, it's not ultimate. It's not absolute. You say, what do you mean? The wife's ultimate submission is to God himself. And where the husband is not leading the family to pursue God and follow God, the wife is under no obligation to live out the principles of Ephesians chapter 5. There is a higher authority. There is a higher submission, and that is to God himself. Submission is living out in Christ-like humility, honor, and respect towards your husband. He says to do it as to the Lord. This means that Christ-like submission is really more about your relationship to and trust in Jesus than it is your husband. It's really about your confidence in Jesus, that God's given you that husband and that Jesus is big enough to, to lead and to guide and to prompt and to convict and to challenge and to change. Second statement to husbands. Got to be honest with you as a preacher, it's a whole lot easier to talk to my group than it is to talk to the other group. A lot more freedom when you get to talk to somebody in your situation. So let me talk to the husbands for a minute. You are to demonstrate Christ-like submission by lovingly dying to yourself to meet every need of your wife. Now, wives, I hope just in that statement 
there begins to be a little more level of comfort in the responsibility that God's given you. God's given you the responsibility to Christ-like submission towards the spiritual leadership of your husband. How's he supposed to lead? By lovingly dying to himself. So that he can put every need in your life ahead of his own. You see how this works beautifully together when filled with the Holy Spirit of God? Now, some might say the husbands get off a little easy. The word for the wife is this word of submission. The word for the husband is the word love. Well, that's because we don't understand the word love. We say things like, I love a good steak. I love sports. I love my family. We, we don't understand the difference. But the Greeks were much more specific. In the Greek language, there are three different words in the New Testament for love. One is eros. We get our word erotic from it. It speaks to a sensual or emotional kind of love. Another is the word phileo. We get the city Philadelphia from it. It's a brotherly love or friendship. The third is the word agape. It's a self-sacrificing kind of love. The, the kind of love that is described of God himself in the way that he so loved us. When the scripture says here that husbands are to love their wives, it's not an agape, an erotic, sensual kind of love. It's not a phileo, friendship kind of love. It's agape. It is a self-sacrificing kind of love. It, it's a love that finds one's joy in something as an act of the will. It's the love that describes the way God loved us. Let me give you some of the examples. For example, God's love for us is sovereign. Here's what that means. God doesn't love us because he feels love toward us. God loves us because in his sovereignty, he's chosen to love us, even though we were unlovable. Meaning it's not a love that's rooted and grounded in my feelings. I, I get so frustrated when I hear a husband say, well, I just don't feel like I'm in love anymore. Listen, it doesn't matter whether you feel like you're in love anymore. The love that God's called us to, it's a sovereign choice that says whether I feel it or not, I choose to love my wife. That's an agape kind of love. Number two, it's a, a love that's sacrificial. God emptied heaven. He sent his only begotten son and Jesus to God in the flesh, died on a cross and gave himself. He gave everything so that we could be in a loving relationship with him. The kind of love that we've been called to as husbands is a love that's sovereign. It's a choice and it's a love that's sacrificial and willing to die to ourselves. Third, it's a love that's unconditional. Aren't you glad that God doesn't love us conditionally? Aren't you glad that there aren't parameters and boundaries where once we step across those, God goes, well, that's too much. I'm done with you. No, every time we step across that boundary in love, he just pursues us and he woos us back. Listen, husbands, God has called us to a kind of love that is absolutely unconditional. There are no boundaries. There are no expectations. There's no performance demanded. It is a love that is unconditional. Tony Marita said it this way, and I love the way he said it. He said, men, marriage is a call to die. Dying to self may involve sacrificing your schedule and even your good ambitions. It means giving yourself away for the good of your bride. It involves crucifying your flesh and resolving to be faithful to your bride, not yielding to the temptations of lust, anger, and pride. You show me an Ephesians 5 husband. And 99 times out of 100, let me tell you what I'll find. An Ephesians 5 wife. Most of the time, where there's not an Ephesians 5 wife, let me tell you why. Because there's not an Ephesians 5 husband. And guys, if you don't like that, that goes with the responsibility we've been entrusted to by God himself when he designed this thing the way it's supposed to work. It's on us. And we'll talk more next weekend about those two statements. But even in hearing them at the 30,000 foot level, I know what we're thinking. <laughs> I don't know that we can do that in our own strength. And you're right. And that's why Paul started this whole thing with Ephesians 5, 18. He said, don't forget, be what? Filled with the Spirit. Why? 
Because only as the Spirit fills me and lives through me. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. So, you know what? You could take that verse, drop it right here in Ephesians 5, and just say that's what he's talking about. But that's only possible when the Spirit in me is manifesting his fruit through me. So here's the last thing I'll say. Fourth, fourth and final statement, I'm done. Marriage is a relationship for life. Read that out loud with me. Marriage is a relationship for life. Every instruction given in Ephesians 5 is in the present tense. Here's what that means. It's describing what is to be the ongoing, continuous action of our lives. Meaning that God's design for this is permanence. And let me tell you, I'm just going to be real transparent for a minute, Christians. And listen, I say what I'm about to say in grace, understanding we live in a broken world, and sometimes it is unavoidable, and there's nothing we can do. But God's design for the marriage relationship is not just one man and one woman. Christians like to jump up and down on that one. God's design for the marriage relationship is one man and one woman for one lifetime. And that is equally a part of God's grand design for marriage. And one of the reasons we've lost our voice in speaking with authority about marriage being between a man and a woman is because we've punted this issue of man being, or marriage being between a man and a woman for an entire lifetime. We've lost some of our spiritual credibility in the arena. Now, there is God's grace that can restore, but listen, whatever your past, whatever's led you to this moment, here's what I want to challenge you with. From this moment on, embrace God's design. Marriage is one man and one woman for one lifetime. Make the decision today. Don't, don't let anything else speak into it. Make the decision today that there's one authority that's going to shape the way you view marriage, and that authority is the Word of God. And I don't say that to you to restrict you. I say that to you because there's joy and there's peace and there's blessing and there's life in the boundaries that God's given us in His Word. So let me close with an application and then... Um, we're going to end our service a little differently today. We're not going to stand and sing. I'm going to lead us in a time to pray. I just think we need to pray today. But here's the application I want to give you. And this is just a little, because I know today's been pretty weighty and theological. Next weekend's going to be real practical. So I wanted to leave you with one practical kind of how-to. For my wife and I, one of the things that we established early on in our marriage was a rhythm. A rhythm of our relationship that we defined as kind of a target to help us work on our marriage together. Now, when I put this up here, I want you to understand, we have not been perfect at this. But you never hit a target you're not aiming at. So you need some kind of target. So for us, for 27 years, and now we look into the future to continue to build the kind of rhythm, here's the target that we've established, the five rhythms of a lifelong relationship for us. I'm not going to spend much time, but you can take a picture of it if you want to. It's just pray daily. That's either praying for one another or with each other every single day. Don't let a day go by that you don't pray for your spouse. You say, Pastor, you don't miss a day? Yes, I miss a day, but I got a target I'm aiming at. Date weekly. Continue to pursue your spouse. Make a decision that every, every week you're going to date. That can be a meal, it can be a movie, it can be a walk in the park, but there's going to be a date every week. If you don't have that as a target, let me tell you what's going to happen. You'll go months without dating before you realize, you know what? We ain't been on a date in a while. Number three, escape monthly. Once a month, we try to do an all-day date. It can be like it was this week. We went and looked at trailer campers over at Camping World. We just hung out there for the day looking at trailer campers. We just hanging out together, just something we both were interested in learning about. Get away quarterly. We try to once a quarter, four times a year, do an overnight 
just us away from the kids. And those look different now than they did when we first got married because we didn't have any money when we first got married. So the overnight meant we sent the kids to somebody else's house so we could just have our house by ourselves. <laughs> There's a lot of, you can do this cheap, doesn't matter. And then retreat annually. We try to spend several days away. And here's, here's something awesome. My wife and I just celebrated 27 years of marriage in May. And in April, uh, we got away and went uh, overseas for about 12 days together, just she and I. Longest, I guess, in, in, in a while, we've been away just the two of us. 12 or 13 days, just the two of us. On the plane coming home, we looked at each other and we said, you know what? We're not tired of each other. <laughs> now, that may sound weird, but... I mean, 12, 13 days, 24-7, where well, you wake up, they're right there. You go to eat, they're right there. You go to the coffee shop, they're right there. You go to the gym, they're right there. 14 days. And we thought, man, how cool. How cool that 27 years in, we can still do 14 days and neither one of us ready to jump out the airplane. We, we, we. <laughs> Let me tell you, you don't wind up there without some kind of rhythm that you build. You hear God's word today? Say amen. amen. Let's pray. We're not going to have a stand and sing, come forward. I just want to lead us in a time of prayer today. And then I'm going to let you go. We do have some pastors that are going to be here at the front. Just up here, uh, sitting on either side of the stage, if I get a couple of our guys that just join me up here. If you're here today while I'm leading this prayer time, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you'd like to come to know Jesus, you can come to one of these pastors up here. Or when the service ends, out in the lobby, there's a Next Step Center. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, when our service ends, we'd invite you to stop by that center and just say, hey, I need to talk to somebody about how to know Jesus. And listen, if you don't know Jesus today, I understand that today some of what I've shared is very countercultural, and I know it doesn't. But listen, don't, find out who Jesus is first. Find out who Jesus is first and let Jesus give you guidance as you pursue him and his word. But I want to start today in a word of prayer all over the building right now. Here's what I want you to do. I just want you to pray for the marriages of Hope Church for just a moment. Just all over the room, just in your own heart. Again, pastors are here. If you want to pray with a pastor or you need to talk to a pastor, they're here at the front. You can come to one of them. But the rest of you right now, just begin to pray for the marriages of, of this fellowship. Pray that God would raise up Ephesians 5 husbands and Ephesians 5 wives. Now I want to make this real personal. I want you to pray specifically for your marriage. If you're married, I want you to pray for the marriage that you're in, your husband, your wife. You pray for them. If you're single and you desire to be married, I want you to pray for your future spouse right now. If you're a woman, pray that God would lead you to an Ephesians 5 man. If you're a man, pray that God would lead you to an Ephesians 5 woman. If singleness is your calling and you don't have that desire for marriage, then you pray that right now as people are praying for their own marriage, would you just join them and pray for miracles to happen? Would you as a single just, just carry the burden of these marriages today and pray for miracles to happen all over this room? here's the third thing I want us to pray for today. I want you to pray for a marriage that you personally know that's in trouble. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's a marriage of someone in your small group. 
Maybe it's a marriage of someone in your circle of friends or in your neighborhood. But I want you right now to pray for a marriage that you know is in trouble. If it's your marriage, pray for your marriage more. And I want you to listen to me carefully as you pray. If your marriage is in trouble and you would like someone from our church family to walk with you, we've set up an email address, matters at hopechurchonline.com. It's on the screen if you want to take a picture of it. It's just matters at hopechurchonline.com. If you'll email us at that address, matters at hopechurchonline.com, if your marriage is in trouble, we'll have someone from our team reach out to you and walk with you through the decision-making process that you're in. You're not alone. Maybe today you'd say, my marriage, it's not in trouble, but man, it could be better. Listen, no better way to deal with this when we dismiss in just a minute out in the courtyard is an opportunity to connect in small groups. Don't try to do this thing of marriage on your own. You need to be connected with others and walking with others. If you're, if you're married today or if you're single and you're not connected in small groups, you need to get connected today in the courtyard. God, I stand today on behalf of this fellowship. And I beg you, God, for the marriages that are already in existence. I I beg you, God, on behalf of marriages that will take place in the weeks and months and years to come in this fellowship. God, would you sovereignly guard the sanctity of marriage in this fellowship? So go the marriages in this fellowship. So goes the health of this body. Lord, I pray for those today who are hurting. I pray for your grace. I pray for your wisdom. And I pray, God, you'd give them the boldness to reach out so that we could walk with them. Lord, they're not alone. Don't let the enemy, God, convince them that they're alone. They're not alone. They're not the only one. God, thank you that in the midst of the complexity of the shifting sands of our world, you gave us an anchor. You gave us a word to help us, not to hurt us. Lord, use it today to bring health, healing, and wholeness. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.